Strange Stories UK here again. Well, I'm away for a couple of weeks as from tomorrow. I was working on an interesting recent case in Sussex. But I haven't finished it in time and so I'll post that one in a couple of weeks when I return. Today I'm putting up a a filler type episode in order to make use of my podcast upload allowance. This won't be a case for everyone. In fact, it will be a strong contender, another strong contender, for the worst download figure ever. So please don't expect a normal story today. It's not true crime, but it's about, about strange histories and stories originally researched by two of my favourite Victorian characters, Frank Buckland and Henry Mayhew. I'm just going to start uh, writing about rats and rat catching and see where it leads us. So, not a methodical presentation, just hopefully an interesting ramble. I used to live in a large Georgian house near Brighton. It was built solid like a castle, but not really having any foundations. It had been built as a small coaching inn in the 1840s on the London to Brighton Road. If you lifted the floorboards, there was bare earth underneath, which meant that when the cold weather came, rats would come into the house, unless all the holes were blocked. Needless to say, they would still get in, and once under the floorboards, they would try to scramble up between the interior walls and make it into one of the attics. In bed at night, they could be heard scrambling around. Poison would be put down, and then, if a rat died near a heating pipe, there would be a dreadful smell for a couple of weeks. The rats would stay until about March, and then they would leave the house until about the next October or November. So the main theme of this podcast is about rats in Victorian England. Other personal rats experience I had would include um, fishing trips on a river as a young lad. Rats love water, and uh, they live near riverbanks, in ditches, in ponds. And while we were fishing, we would eat the sandwiches we had bought with us, but would always leave a few morsels. And we would leave them in the paper bag, we'd put a stone in the bag and fling it onto the opposite bank. As dusk approached, there would be a movement about the bag, which we were able to view the whiteness in the gloaming. We'd aim our air rifles and air pistols and at the given moment all fire at the bag. I'm not sure we ever killed a rat because our weapons were so low powered and using uh, 177 pellets. I'd imagine they'd be incapable of breaking the skin of a rat. I once had a job picking bananas as a student type traveller some years back in a far off country. In the cutting team one person would have a long stick with a sharp cutter at the end and another person would take the strain of the bananas on their back as the stalk was cut and then the bananas would be taken and loaded onto a trailer pulled along by a tractor. The bananas were wrapped in brown paper when they first sprouted as any contact uh, could result in a bruise on the fruit, a brown mark. Other members of the picking team would be the small terrier dogs. Their jobs would be to kill the rats that ran out of the paper hideaways and run down the backs and legs of the cutters. I'd estimate that every 
eighth banana tree that was cut would hold a rat or a pair of rats. In fact, another memory just come to me was waking up in an Egyptian hotel watching a pair of rats playing on the curtain pelmet. Anyhow, I'm sure we all have some rat stories we could tell. Frank Buckland was studying rats in the mid-19th century. And when he was doing so, there were two species of rat in the living in the UK. The black rat and the brown rat. Neither indigenous to North America or Europe, both species being introduced from Asia. Colonising Europe from boats carrying spices and other goods from China, Japan and India. In the UK, the brown rat, or the Norway rat, Rattus norwegius or something, has replaced the black rat, which was named Rattus rattus, its Latin name, almost everywhere. The brown rat being a stronger creature, fond of fighting, and of cannibalistic habits. Buckland talks of a rat catcher having caught a couple of dozen rats of both species, being left in a cage overnight. But by the morning, only brown rats remained in the cage. In Buckland's experience, some rats are ferocious cannibals, whilst others do not share that characteristic. It is possible to make use of this by getting a number of rats in a cage and not feeding them until just one rat is left. The creature, now excited by the blood of his brothers that he's eaten, can be turned loose into a house troubled by rats, and this would uh, clear the problem of the wild rats, just leaving the cannibalistic one. Buckland does mention another possible existence of another species of rat in the UK. A small black water rat, shaped like a mole with a long body and short legs and a short thick head. This was quite often found in Bedfordshire and Leicestershire, but it's now very rare as it's killed by the common water rat or water vole. In Buckland's time, they were still said to be found at Barton Brook near Woodstock in Oxfordshire, but Buckland never seen such a creature. There was another rat mentioned by Buckland called a trumpet rat, which was like a rat rhinoceros. But it turns out this is a fake species constructed from two rats when the tail of one rat is grafted to the nose of another and secured tightly in place. If the two rats are kept in position for 48 hours until the tail is taken, the tail then can be cut off the rat with the free nose to the required length. By the end of the month, the nose will be perfectly healed. This experiment was first carried out by French troops, who must have had a lot of free time on their hands. But these trumpet rats uh, were sold to naturalists, and this is how Buckland came to find out about them. In his book, Mayhew's London, Mayhew is talking to a rat catcher at Somerstown which is near where the British Library is found today. The man is not named, tells about his work, the best dogs to use, the best place to buy ferrets, how much bounty is paid for killing a rat. And then he goes on to tell Mayhew how he has been put in a pit to kill rats in competition with a dog. He said it started as a lark, but now he does it for a wager. The man said it started when he went to see the sport of dogs killing rats, and he made negative comments about a dog and claimed that he could kill rats quicker than that dog. He was challenged and the sovereign was bet. Sovereign just over a pound of sterling. 
today that would be worth uh, probably 130 pounds in today's uh, in today's money the man beat the dog killing eight rats quicker than the dog he used the same method as a dog would getting on his hands and knees and killing the rats with his teeth this admission must have persuaded Mayhew to attend a rat killing night which he explains took place one night in a well-known public house that had a ratting night once a week. The location in London is not given as it was a fence to bet on such a sport. That's to say that betting was illegal, not the actual sport of ratting. There was a 1835 Act of Parliament on the cruelty of animals but it did not apply to rats and ratting competitions became a popular sport as a consequence. In London in 1860 there were thought to be about 60 ratting pits usually found in public houses. In the pub attended by Mayhew there were men of every class in society and, and some foreigners. They're all smoking and drinking, talking about dogs. Many of them had built their dogs with them the spectrum of different species, Bulldogs, Bedlington Terriers, Jack Russells, Skye Terriers, Little Brown English Terriers, Yorkshire Terriers, Manchester Terriers, Staffordshire Bull Terriers. The owners all anxious to test their dogs between matches in the pit. You could purchase half a dozen rats and test your dog that you had bought with you and maybe sell it if it gave a good performance and a good price was offered. There was much dog-dealing that went on during such nights. Over the fireplace of the pub there were glazed boxes in which displayed the stuffed forms of dogs famous in their day for their ratting abilities. There were also prints of such dogs. For example, one representing Wonder Tiny, five and a half pounds in weight, killing 200 rats in a session. This dog had been a great favourite of the pub's proprietor and he used to wear a woman's bracelet for a collar. There was another famous uh, dog called Billy, famed for its wonderful feat of killing 500 rats in five and a half minutes. I think this dog was owned by Jack Black, of whom uh, more of later. At about nine o'clock, the proprietor gave the order to close the shutters and light up the pit. The announcement causing a rise in spirits and exciting all the dogs in the room, who tied to tables ran the full length of their leads. There was an announcement that the room was ready, and everybody rose as one and filed into the room, dropping the admission fee of one shilling, or 5p, the equivalent today would be about £12, into the hands of the proprietor. The pit or this pit, as witnessed by Mayhew, was a small circus, about six feet in diameter, with wooden sides to allow elbow height, to about elbow height. Above the pit was arranged gas lamps which lit the wooden painted floor, painted white. The audience stood on tables or hung over the side of the pit. And there's much noise, all the dogs were barking or squealing, struggling to be free especially when a rusty wire cage of rats was brought in, the noise becoming so great that the proprietor has to shout, telling people to shut their dogs up. The rats were taken out of the cage by hand, pulling their tails, then jerked into the ring. The dog in question was brought in, but 
didn't prove very good at killing rats. When he had finished, the proprietor called out to the audience, who wanted their dog to take part. But various excuses were given as to why it was not convenient for their dog to do so at such a time. They had a bad mouth, or they were only used to catching small rats. One little dog was put into the ring to amuse himself with the dead bodies. He seized a rat almost as big as himself and shook it furiously, drumming the rat's head on the floor, causing the audience to hoot with laughter. One man exclaiming, He's a good'un, shaking heads and towels, ain't he? Preparations were made for the main event of the evening, in which 50 rats were to be killed. The pit was cleared and 50 rats were put into the pit. They gathered into a mound, reaching about a third of the side up the pit. These were sewer rats and ditch rats. Eventually a bull terry was brought in, shaking with excitement, foaming at the mouth. The animal was almost mad with rage. A stopwatch was produced and an umpire decided upon as to decide if the rats were actually dead. If a rat can't crawl a certain distance after being mauled, it's declared dead. The moment the dog was introduced into the pit, he became quiet in the most businesslike manner, rushing the rats, burying his nose in the mound, and in a short time a dozen rats were dead, with bloody necks marking the white floor. One rat hung on to the terrier's nose, and he couldn't shake it off. He dashed it against the side, leaving a patch of blood as if a strawberry had been smashed there. Time was called and the dog was pulled off, and the dead rats counted. The dog lost the match. He had not killed enough rats. A shower of copper coins was thrown into the pit. There was a break in the evening while people refilled their glasses, and then the evening commenced until midnight, with various other dogs trying to kill a number of rats within a specified time. At the end of the evening, deals were done regarding dogs, and rats could be purchased to take home in order to train dogs on how to kill them. Ratting rules varied from match to match and dog to dog. If the rules and records of ratting competitions are required, the, all the information can be found online. Perhaps the best-known rat catcher was Jack Black. He was rat catcher by appointment to Queen Victoria. Jack Black was also a dog breeder, a taxidermist and a supplier of other animals, especially wild birds. Mayhew had sought out Black and Black told him he'd been ratting for 35 years, starting at the age of nine. He'd been bitten many times and near death on three occasions. Black explains that the rat bite festers and forms a hard core in an ulcer which throbs and is very painful. And after they seem to have healed, they break out all over again. They never seem to cure. Black's advice is to cut a bite clean with a lancet and squeeze the badness out of it. Black admitted to cooking rats and eating them, saying they tasted like rabbit. But if you're cooking sewer rats, leave them for a few days before you kill them. One reason rat catching was so popular was because it was lucrative. In today's money, a rat's bounty was about £4 a rat. So if you had a dog or a ferret that could kill quickly in a building infested with rats, it was possible to make a good living. 
Black increased his income by selling rats to gentlemen who wanted sport for their dogs. Black had been well known around London since a young age. He went around the streets exhibiting with rats. He had a cart and donkey. He trailed the streets. The cart was decorated with images of rats. And Black was proud of his homemade rat belt. With cast metal rats he had made that appeared to be crawling on his belt. Black demonstrated his skill with wild rats. He seemed to have complete control over them. If he was challenged that the rats were tame, he would offer the accuser to hold the rat. They would soon find out they were wild. Black also sold rat poison. He would show the, effect the effectiveness on his rats by making them ingest it. Whenever he was out, Black would sell between 10 shillings to five pounds worth of poison. In today's values, that would be and on an average of £500 a day, each day. The main ingredient being arsenic. Mayhew was not, n not to know that Black would leave a legacy, as Black was an important figure in popularising rats as a pet. He made a habit of catching and keeping unusually coloured rats and breeding them and selling them as pets to be kept in a cage. It's said that Beatrix Potter was one of his customers, and even Queen Victoria had pet rats. It was well-bred women that used to like to keep rats in squirrel cages. There's a National Mouse and Rat Club and a National Fancy Rat Society resulting from the rat catcher Black, looking for other ways to increase his income. who tells of the need to control rats. Quoting a Mr Gibbons, a rat catcher from Westminster, who warned that rats would breed every seven weeks. The female began to have young at 14 weeks old. Buckland remarked that the rat was the only animal that would thrive and always have a clean coat, living at the same time in the most filthy and stinking places, often living in air that would prove fatal to other animals. The rat's always cleaning himself. Never does a rat finish a piece of food or is touched by a human hand, but that it cleans itself immediately afterwards. However, although the rat is a prolific breeder, not many litters survive. If a nest is disturbed in any way, even by moving the cage, the mother will eat the youngsters. Buckland tells a sad little story of how he watched a mother move her little hairless and blind babies from one corner of the cage to another, carrying them in her teeth with the greatest care and delicacy. But she was not happy with her new nest, and following some law of nature, she devoured them. A rat's tail is like having an extra hand. Being a chain of small bones with a multitude of muscles to move them, it, the tail enables a a rat to crawl along the tops of railings, along narrow ledges of walls, the tail acting as a balance, or being entwined around projecting portions of difficult passages, and giving the rat the means to spring up heights otherwise inaccessible. Like the tail of a kangaroo, the rat's tail would allow a rat to reach into long-necked bottles. He dips the tail into fluids, 
which he would then withdraw his tail to drink it. The tail en enables rats to climb trees. They've been observed climbing currant bushes to eat the fruit, boughs bending, almost breaking with their weight. The rat has four small, long and very sharp teeth. Two in the upper jaw, two in the lower jaw. These teeth are coated in a glass like enamel, which allows the gnawing which can cause so much damage. The teeth grow from the bottom, and if a tooth is lost, there's nothing to grind away the tooth opposite. The opposite tooth will continue growing, and could create a complete circle. Rats have a remarkable instinct for finding food. They manage to get onto boats by means of the ropes which they moor, which they moor to the quay. Once on board, if there's any food supply, they will quickly breed. Consider the case of the Valiant, a man of war coming from Havana in 1766. The rats had increased to such a degree they destroyed a hundred weight of biscuits daily. And that's about 50 kilograms. The ship was smoked while at dock in order to suffocate the rats and the cockroaches on board. Ah, a word of warning about cockroaches. There are authenticated cases of sailors getting drunk while on board boats. There isn't much else to do. And some people just spend one night at the bar drinking. They could be put in their bunks but found dead in the morning as they've been choked by cockroaches trying to crawl down their mouths to drink the sweet liquor. Buckland goes on to discuss various ways to clear a building of rats. That is to completely remove them, rather than catching a few in traps from time to time. Various methods were discussed, which usually required winning the rat's trust to begin with. My favourite amongst the methods described is the following. A tub or a barrel, too deep for the rat to escape, is procured. Cut parts of the upper edge out and fit bits of board about a foot long and an inch broad. Through the centre of that board, run some wire and fix it onto the upper rim of the barrel, so it's balanced like a seesaw. On the end that overhangs the barrel, fasten some bacon or cheese, and on the other end rest an object so the rats can walk onto the board and eat the bait. Let the rats become accustomed to eating the bait for a couple of nights, so they're confident. Then on the night you wish to catch them, remove the object securing the boards, so that when the rats come, as usual to get the bait, as soon as they approach the overhanging part of the board, there's no longer, that's no longer supported, it will tip them into the barrel. This done, the board, properly balanced, will swing back, ready for the next rat to ch chance his luck. The barrel could be half filled with water, as when swimming about they will probably make cries of distress, and other rats, being inquisitive animals, will come and see what's the matter, and may join the watery party. During the late Victorian period there was a fashion for importing Australian rats, as they would kill or scare away English rats, according to the advertising patter. However, I can't really see how importing a similar species to eradicate another solves any problems, because presumably they're just replaced. Other methods explained by Buckland include nooses of wire attached to willow trees near rat runs, 
little nooses of copper wire put near rat runs. There's a nice little picture in the book of these little rats caught by their necks on the top of long willow shoots. Another method would be to catch one individual rat and cover it in tire, tar and let it go. It will cover the rat holes and runs with tar and rats can't bear this. The smell or they can't re remove the tar from their fur. Other sticky, sticky substances can be used such as horse turpentine. There's a book from 1768 called The Vermin Catcher. It suggests a mixture of tar, vitrol, sulfuric acid, and common salt mixed well into a deep pan. Then you put the mixture on pieces of paper and put in rat runs and holes. Oil of vitrol is useful for smoking out rats as they cannot bear to be near such a substance. I presume no creatures could bear that either. Rat catchers often claim to have alluring secret poisons, but in reality their prime rat-killing poison was arsenic. The arsenic was mixed with toasted cheese or bacon or fried liver or oatmeal. In the 1850s, Backlund remarks that few rats were now to be seen in areas where they were once common in central London. He cites the example of Newgate Market, where a war of extermination was waged against them. They're all killed, or all killed that could be killed. Then the holes were covered with iron, and the rats were obliged to live in the drains. Also, there was a newly formed sanitary commission, making sure that any offal was removed, depriving the rats of a meal. Buckland talked to a man who killed horses in the area of Regent's Park, who said that in the past, rats would congregate in great numbers in the place, where they used to stack the horses' bones. Now the bones, thanks to the Sanitary Commission, are rapidly removed, and a rat is seldom seen. Buckland compares this to his recent experience in Paris, at the horse-slaughtering house in Montfousson where between 20 and 40 horses were tied up in a row to be killed most days. When a horse is killed, it's skinned, and the carcass is cut up with hatchets and thrown into a huge metal tub, big enough to contain the bodies of several horses. When full, the lid is secured, and the steam turned onto the contents. After a time, the lid is taken off, and it's found that the steam has separated the flesh from the bones, which are beautifully white. The bones are then picked out and placed in stacks. The flesh is thrown out by shovels and spread out widely on the floors, where the air has free access. The flesh soon becomes quite hard and dry. It's put into sacks and sent to chemists, who convert it into prussiative potash for various uses in food production and fertiliser and Prussian blue paint. The bones are ground up in a mill for, man, uh, for manure and bread production. I'll grind his bones to make my bread. The place where the bones are kept is a walled cylindrical building. Getting back to the rats, when the bones are removed from this walled cylindrical building, the rats try to find hiding places within the walls but there's not much space and their towers are often left exposed. 
The men go around plucking the towers and putting the rats into cages. The rats are thought to be used in the production of fine gloves after being skinned. Buckland tries but cannot get confirmation of this, suspecting that the glove makers do not want it known that their gloves are made from rat skins. Buckland decides to investigate by tanning several rat skins, finding they produce a leather very thin and fragile. Yet they could be made into gloves for the sections to uh, glove the fingers and thumbs. Buckland purchased some gloves he suspects of being made from rats from Parisian shops as small delicate hairs are often still adhering to the gloves. Buckland examined these hairs with a microscope as rat hairs are unique but it doesn't come to any conclusions but wanders off into another examination into skin and hairs. These concern portions of hard dry skin found on the bossed heads of huge iron nails fixed into the doors of the chapter house at Westminster. On examination, these hairs prove to be human, belonging to a fair-haired person. It was, it was thought to come from a body of a Dane, a Viking. In former times, these Vikings came up to the mouth of English rivers to pillage English churches. If they were caught, they would be skinned, and their skins would be nailed to the door of the church they had attacked. In the course of time, the exposed skin would be lost, but that covered by the nail would be protected and bear testimony to the cruelty of our ancestors. In the College of Surgeons in London, Lincoln's Fields, there are several specimens of such samples of Viking skin taken from churches in Essex. Regarding the utilisation of rat skins, Buckland mentions a person living in Liscard, Cornwall, who has worn an outfit made entirely from rat skins. Hat, neckerchief, coat, waistcoat, trousers and shoes. The number of rats required for the outfit was 670. Then a boa was made composed of the pieces of skin immediately around the tails of the rats. This was made out of 600 tails. The lady in Glasgow specialising in making the uppers of shoes made from the skins of rats. The leather is very smooth and as soft as the finest kid. It takes six skins for a pair of shoes. However, overall Buckland thinks that rat's leather is not robust enough to be very useful. Buckland does tend to go off subject and talk on related subjects. For example, when talking about the body of a dried rat he was examining, he tells about a body of a man exhibited at Hungerford Market. The handbill of the exhibition, around 1860, stated that it was a fossil man. Buckland states it was not a fossil, but a dried up body, just like a rat's body he was examining. The body was found buried in Guano, in some island in the Pacific, Guano being Bird, bird excrement. It was harvested as uh, as fertilizer. The dead man's name was Christopher Toledo, for a stave of an oil barrel was found on his body with a name and date, 1670, cut out roughly by a knife, a sailor's knife. 
Buckland examined the body of Christopher and deduced that he'd been tortured and murdered. In Oxford Street, in around 1870, there was another exhibition of a semi-fossilised man, which cost a penny to view. Buckland claims that the Toledo exhibition was, five, was a shilling. Twelve times the price of viewing the semi-fossilised man. Penny was about 50p in today's value. This body was covered in guano and was thought to be about two to 3,000 years old. It was not uncommon for an exhibition of a, an unusual exhibit or a freak to be shown in Victorian times. Tom Norman was an English Barnum-type character and exhibited many strange things, including a woman who bit the heads off live rats. Freak shows still continue today in some forms in the UK. A few years back, I was at a a country fair, and there was a display by mice, and then another by fleas. Aimed at children, but clearly a modern equivalent of what was common in Buckland's time. Having had a cursory look at the internet regarding rat catching and looking at rat catching records, which I've not bored you with here, I find there's a celebrated uh, rat catcher remembered at Spin Valley in Yorkshire, Thomas Cassidy. Apparently he was world champion, or claimed to be world champion, from the 20th century. This is what I found. Heckmond Wicks, Thomas Cassidy, claimed to be world champion. Poor sanitation and filthy ash pits meant rats were everywhere. Thomas drove them out of their holes using a secret concoction, catching them with his bare hands. His record was catching 153 out of 155 rats in 30 minutes with neither dog nor ferret to assist. He achieved this feat in 1908 at Wick factory which processed sheepskins. Thomas wasn't daft. He would leave one or two rats so his services would be required again. Apparently you can see on plaque 18 on the green in the centre of Wick. So Thomas is remembered with a plaque. It looks like it's a, a park within the uh, with, within Heck Mondwick. When searching for famous people from Heck Mondwick, disappointing that Thomas doesn't feature. Although Dave Pibus, bassist from the metal band Cradle of Filth, is mentioned. Well, such is the fickle hand of history. To today's story. I'd like to say that if you want to comment on anything, um, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, under Strange Stories UK. And I'd like to thank Damselfly again for providing the background music. And we'll have a proper episode again in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you and goodbye.